everyone, welcome to the Untold Stories podcast, where we unfold the events that led some of the modern successful entrepreneurs to reach prosperity. We want to thank you so much for tuning in, and if you want more content from us, you can follow us on our social media accounts at Startupogovgrad. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Untold Stories podcast by Startup at Blagojevgrad. Today we have um, Mikhail. Hello, you can introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a Bulgarian, born and raised in Vienna, but I've I've been to Bulgaria every summer and uh, love the startup scene, and I'm happy to connect more. That's wonderful. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, kind of tell us what your untold story is. Um, you have, you know, grown up in Vienna and tell us pretty much um, how you feel about, you know, living there um, as a, you know, as a Bulgarian, what you kind of do. Tell us about your story. Yeah, I mean, if you want, I will start with a short introduction on what I've I've done so far or where mm-hmm. I'm at so that all the listeners uh, understand where I'm coming from. But basically, this year, 2021, I founded my my third organization. So it's the third time I'm founding. And I'm 22 now. So I started with my first startup when I was 18. Uh, I was in karate before. I was actually, uh, where, where everything started was in karate. I, was, I started karate when I was five, and I uh, went to a lot of competitions. And for the first couple of years, I mainly lost. And then at some point, I started winning, and I became a three times Austrian karate champion. And what I learned in karate was this mindset that also brought me to entrepreneurship, that no bullshit. When you're on the mat, you cannot tell the people why something is not going to work. You have to try and either it works or it doesn't and you learn. And it's the same with startups. And then when I finished school, I started my first startup, which was a social network that connects people based on their interests. So when I go to Barcelona, for example, I can easily meet uh, other people who, who are very entrepreneurial for a beer or something. We did that with two other Bulgarians who lived in uh, Amsterdam for two years nearly. We got a national grant, but eventually we failed also because of COVID. And now, again, with those two guys in the in the summer, no, in the in March 2020, last year, when COVID started, we started building a contact tracing app, so a COVID tracker, basically. And our team grew to 80 people, and we built Europe's first uh, automated contact tracing app. And fast forward, we got 150,000 downloads on our first day on the market. And this year I started a new business with uh, one of my role models and another very experienced tech entrepreneur. And we're doing, we're building a venture builder. So we're doing different uh, ventures focused on, on impact, focused on dig- digitalization and new trends that are coming, especially because of the pandemic. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. You definitely have that entrepreneurial um, flame in you. Uh, for sure, we can say that. So can you just tell me more about what made you passionate about entrepreneurship in the first place? Was there something that kind of kickstarted your mindset in Vienna when you were there? Who were the people around you that kind of supported your ideas um, from the beginning? Was there anyone that you could say helped you from the start? Who are the Who were the people around you um, when you started uh, in your entrepreneurial world? That's a good question. I think uh, my, my dad probably is a very important role. He's a refugee, actually. He flew from Bulgaria uh, back in the, what, what is it in English? Iron Curtain. 
Uh, yes, the Iron Curtain, yeah. Iron Curtain, exactly. So that's when he came to Austria and had a very, very tough time coming up. And with my mom, they started a little company and always very entrepreneurial. And that kind of motivated me. And what, what my, actually what my first dream was when, when I was very young, I said, one day I want to become an inventor. Then I started going to school and uh, everyone was watching the WWE wrestlers. So the wrestlers in TV. And I was like, actually, it would be cool to become a manager of a wrestler or something. And then at some point when I was like 15, uh, I combined the two and I, I said, actually, becoming an entrepreneur would be amazing. Seeing all those great people that are creating such impact with entrepreneurship. And my first venture, I started my first little venture when I was like uh, nine, I think. That was when I was in Bulgaria in, in a hotel and or eight, maybe I was eight. But someone told me about orphans and I didn't know that orphans existed and they didn't have any parents, they didn't have uh, parents. So that made me sad. And we were in a hotel at that point. So I just started cleaning the shoes of all the people in the hotel and uh, collected 150 levers, which is like nearly 80 euros, uh, which I donated to an orphanage village, to an orphanage. And that was my first certificate for something entrepreneurial I did. So it was always about the social part as well. That's very interesting. So you've kind of been digging into the social entrepreneurship sphere from a young age, um, evidently, since you were very young. Um, do you believe that you would be interested in kickstarting something uh, in the social entrepreneurship world again in the future? Or are you more focused on tech currently? Definitely. No, I, I think you can. Co- I, I think you should combine the, the two. I think, to, to be honest, what, I, what I'm very convinced of is that Back in the days when you wanted to create impact, you first had to generate wealth. You had to make a lot of money with your company, and then you could start with philanthropy. What is starting now in the last last few years is that you can generate wealth, you can create, you can build companies while creating impact. And what I think will be in the future, and that's because the markets are changing so fast, and also with Fridays for Future and a lot of different movements, I think that markets will will move so much in the direction of impact that in 10 years, you will have to generate some impact in order to be successful with your business. So I think that social entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship will become more and more uh, one in the future. Exactly. When I was reading your article on the recursive um, regarding your story, there was a part where you mentioned that people are more impact-driven than ever. Um, Do you believe that people should be more impact-focused in the beginning of their entrepreneurship journey rather than um, the development of the company itself? They should kind of be setting out why they're founding it, um, what impact that they can have. Do you believe that that should be the bigger focus um, in the beginning life stages of any company? Or what do you think about that? Totally. I, I actually talked to a friend of mine uh, two days ago and we talked about a concept, which is um, when you build a company, you could create a value add. You help people, you, you uh, add something to the world, you bring something extra or you do a value subtraction where you just take away from other companies or from other people. And that is how you grow your company. And I think it is very important to have a value add for society and have an impact. And now with the next years, it's uh, going to be the climate, which is going to be a main topic. And I, I don't know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of entrepreneurship just for money. And I don't think that that's the right motivation. I think it is important that when you start a business and when you want to be successful, you have to have some kind of impact focus. You have to have the vision of changing something, of doing something good. Um, but, but that's how I view it. I think it's extremely important to have an impact focus and 
I couldn't do what I, I, I'm doing if I didn't see what impact I can generate in the future. And because I know I, I, there is some change I can do and some positive impact that can be done, that's, that's what uh, keeps me motivated and keeps me start the projects I do. That's very interesting. Do you have an example of a company that you kind of really look up to that has that main motive, some company that was kind of born in the founding idea that we should make a change, that we should make an impact on the world? Um, is there any company that you're really associated with or interested in it that's kind of changed your viewpoint or kind of influenced uh, your view on this? I mean, yes. Uh, generally, I'm, I'm a big Richard Branson fan. When I started my first company, I was actually just reading his book. And that was when I, while reading his book, Screw It, Let's Do It, I was like, now's the moment, let's start something. I think he didn't do it at the beginning, but now he's getting more and more into impact. And he's just a genius uh, entrepreneur. But one one company that's, did, that I, I look up to in some way, that's it's a company of a very good friend of mine, very good friend. It's called Team Climate. And he started his company while, while, while being in school. And what they do is you can you get to calculate your carbon footprint on the website. And then they compensate your, uh, your emissions with different projects, which they have in Bangladesh, in India, in Peru. And I think while that was a social, very social business earlier in the days, I think that is a, that is a legit business. And I think it, it is important to be able to also make money with such, with such things so that more and more entrepreneurs can be motivated to do such impact-focused projects. And they started, they started in school just doing the C, just compensating the CO2 emissions for cars. And they got Mitsubishi, like they got very big clients. Uh, then they did the same thing for flights. And now they're doing the same thing for the whole life. And I think that's that's one of the great climate projects that we will need over the next few years. That's quite interesting. Actually, I wanted to ask you exactly about the motivational factors when diving into social entrepreneurship. Do you believe that the um, uh, the monetary aspect is more of the drive when it comes to such things? Where do you believe that there should be a line in the balance between knowing that you're starting this with um, a beneficial motive and then also knowing that money can be made out of it? Do you believe that the monetary aspect kind of negatively influences the motive behind some social startups? Or do you believe that it really comes down to personal values and beliefs when founding such startups? Do you believe that the monetary value can be um, a problem in some sort of sense? So where I think there is a problem when it comes to social entrepreneurship, I think it's problematic that uh, a lot of people still think that you're not allowed or clients think that you're not allowed to make money with social businesses. I feel like that is a big problem because that is the reason why there are not enough social entrepreneurs, why there are not enough people generating impact with their business. I mean, again, this this uh, one friend of mine who does this business, I think it is important for them to also make money in order to, to grow, in order to finance the business, to do more marketing, create a bigger impact. And I think it's better to pay them a little more than Netflix. But companies like, the, like them feel bad when they take too much money. So they try to put as much as possible into impact which is great. But I think it is important that the market understands that it is okay to also make uh, create some profit with impact, uh, impact startups and not judge when someone has 20% uh, taken for them. Because normally such social uh, projects, social, and, uh, social businesses are extremely efficient when it comes to using the money. They are really efficient. No matter how I would use my 10 euros, my 10 euros couldn't create such an impact as their five euros create because they have built the whole projects. 
But uh, yeah, I think it's a problem of the markets. They always they feel like you cannot make money with social uh, entrepreneurship. And that is something I see changing and I think will change faster and has to change soon in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I completely agree on the fact that we shouldn't really neglect the idea of money when it comes to social entrepreneurship because it is a motivating factor. It, whether we like it or not, money is a motivating factor when it comes to starting a business. So whether that be in the social entrepreneurship or tech entrepreneurship, um, it kind of is a general motivating factor and it shouldn't be neglected really when um, it comes down to starting a business because that money could be really turned into something great. Um, it goes back to the whole reason why you started it. And um, I really agree with that. That's very interesting. So I'm actually going to switch it over to you telling me more about your first startup, Friendzone. So can you kind of give me the background on that? What happened? Um, how did you guys go about it? Who was around you when you started the um, the whole idea, the project? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually haven't talked too much in, in to many people about Friendzone, but uh, how did we start it? So Actually, it was just after school. I was traveling uh, with my family. We were in Barcelona. And that was when I was reading this book of Richard Branson. And I was like, I always wanted to find a company. Now I finally finished school. Uh, let's do something. And I thought about the problems I have. And I don't think that's the right way to, to start, uh, start a company. But I was like, what problems do I have right now and I can solve? Um, and I, I thought, yeah, I'm in Barcelona. And I haven't met any entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurs here. And I would like to meet them. Let's build an app where I can type in my interests and uh, meet, get matched to other people for a beer who are also entrepreneurs or are very entrepreneurial or aspiring entrepreneurs. And that's how the idea started. Then I saw that there was a national grant I could apply for just a week after that, uh, freshly out of school. And I was like, okay, super interesting. Uh, now I need a team to convince them. So I asked two friends to help me and... They are not interested in entrepreneurship, but somehow we made it into the final rounds and uh, convinced them to get there. We didn't get the grant because they were, yeah, I mean, eventually they were not, not convinced enough and we were just fresh out of school. And then I had one year to prepare. I found two great programmers, uh, Niko and Ilya Nikushev, uh, Nikushevi from Bulgaria, twins, and they studied in Amsterdam. And I texted them on, on, on Facebook and... Um, told them about the idea and they were like hey it's interesting would be cool to hear more about it and i told them well actually in two weeks i am in amsterdam are you there and they said yes so i uh, booked my my flight to amsterdam and flew over and uh, that's how it started and then we got into this into this program we developed a lot we we worked on the product on the product it's friendzone.at so you can find it uh we tried, we tested it. We learned a lot. I think we learned a lot of things with, with this, uh, with Friendzone. We got mentorings. We got money from, from the, from Austria, from the Austrian uh, Wirtschaftsservice, it's called. And um, co-working spaces. I got a very fast deep dive into entrepreneurship. But eventually it, it was, it was, it, it didn't work out, unfortunately. The market, we didn't see the market anymore at some point. It took us so, such a long time and uh, it was also draining because somehow we didn't didn't get the results we wanted, but we learned a lot of things that we we should we have would have to do different if we started again. And I think that's like this whole learning journey, although it wasn't super successful successful, that's what helped us then understand what to do different with Novitz. And Novitz, uh, when we started it, it then grew to eighty people in just a week, and uh, we had a finished uh, app launched by a government six weeks after our idea. So. I think 
friend zone was a very intense learning journey. That's actually a very dynamic um, start that you've had. I mean, flying out to a different country just to, you know, um, kind of kickstart such a thing is really interesting. But I actually wanted to go back to ask you about something that you mentioned in the beginning. And it was that the idea was started with a personal problem that you had. Um, And you mentioned that you don't really believe that this is how startups should go about in the beginning. Why don't you believe that? Um, Isn't kind of the idea of startups kind of to find a problem and then solve it um or did you miss something else in that reference yes of course i it's 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 true that you have to find a problem and solve it i think you have to analyze more so i i just started with this thing without looking for exactly what are the competitors but generally what i think and what i i I read a lot about it also the founder of y combinator y combinator is probably the greatest incubator worldwide in in the valley in the silicon valley and the founder paul graham said something very interesting he believes that there are two kinds of very successful founders or of all the founders he saw, there were always two profiles, which were the the, the most interesting and the best founders. Uh, and the first one is a person that is extremely good in what he or she, well, in what they do. So for example, the, uh, I don't know, let's think, let me think about it. The best person in the construction industry. And then at least someone who has all the connections in the construction industry and who knows exactly what the problems are. And because of this, this resource, which is you, because you have the network, that understanding of this market, which only a few people have, you can build a product on this. And this can grow extremely fast and you have a very strong competitive advantage. So if you become an expert in the field and you understand way more than most of the others, that's where you can build amazing products and where you can beat the competition way better. And then there's a second thing, which we did with Novit, and that is look for a market that is growing very fast, a market that is small now, but will be big soon. Bill Gates, for example, when he did, uh, when he started with Microsoft, there were about a few, a few thousand people using computers and people called them hobbyists because nobody's going to use computers. Bill Gates understood the technology. He saw where the whole thing is going to go. And he developed a product for a very small market. For those thousands of, a few thousand uh, people, he developed the, the, the computer. He started with Microsoft. And the market was extremely small. But that is because the market was growing. And in the case of Novit, I was actually very lucky because I was in Spain. And in Spain, after Italy, we had extremely high raise, raise, rising numbers. We were the, I, I think Spain actually overtook uh, Italy in numbers. So I saw where, how big the problems were already. And when I came to Austria, people didn't get this yet. It took them four more days until they also were in the extreme pandemic we had in Spain. So when I came back to Austria, I saw we need to do something. And I called my friend in South Korea where they already had some solutions. And uh, he told me about what they did. And we started working on this solution from South Korea. And two days later, we had the lockdown in Austria. And our team was already 15, 20 people that were working full time on it. And then the lockdown came. I did a LinkedIn post and everyone wanted to do a salute to work on a solution. So the market just exploded extremely fast and uh, the need for such a thing. And because we're, we, we, we saw this change in markets, uh, we, we could develop something and we could uh, grow this fast. And honestly, I think in the next five years, so many markets are going to crash. So much change is going to happen. Companies are going to fall and so many are going to, so many new companies are going to come up. And I think there are so many new problems, so many new trends. If you look also at, at the problem of climate and climate is, is uh, one, of the, one of the things, the, the market around climate change and solving climate change is 
so much more money is being put in every year. And I think as this is going to be the probably the most important challenge we'll have in the next decade, so much more money will, is going to be there. So that's just one of the markets. But then you have uh, now everyone has to be digital. There's uh, companies like Gathertown, which started in May 2020, and they're basically building a virtual world uh, where you can do Zoom uh, Zoom calls, but you have a person moving around. When I, when I move to you, a Zoom uh, pops up. They raised $26 million just not even a year after they started because they saw a new problem, they saw a new market, and they started building. So I think number one, the two ways to build a company is Either be an expert, try to be an expert in that field, understand a lot, or under see a, see a new market, see a new technology, see something new that is going to be important in the next years. Of course, you can also uh, just work on a problem that you have, but because we're we're billions of people on this world, normally, no matter which normal problem you have, there already is a great solution. That's what I saw over the last years. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, actually, the concept of what you just mentioned is a bit tricky because there is the theory of luck that kind of plays in. Um, in the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, he kind of goes over the fact that there a lot of um, successful startups and companies and people have had the luck to be kind of pushed from the start. Um, for example, you mentioned Bill Gates. The reality behind Bill Gates' story is that he was very lucky to have the opportunity to um, create code in, in in a time where access to such an opportunity was very limited. It was just the beginning of the programming world. So it kind of, um, there is the concept of luck in that. For example, he was very lucky to be growing up in a wealthy town with um, a wealthier community where they did have access to such computers where he could have the opportunity to code. So um, bringing that into what you're mentioning about kind of what brings success to the entrepreneurial world, do you believe that a lot of startups and companies have had a kickstart, a beneficial kickstart with luck that maybe some others haven't? And does that play a vital role in the success overall in the future of these startups? What do you think about that concept? Yeah, I I love it. I think luck is extremely important. And I don't know, like so many people do do not see luck as an important uh, factor. I think long term, if you are someone who, I think long term, Bill Gates would be very successful. If he did not have this luck, he would have been successful with something else. What I think is the role of an entrepreneur is to see where the problems are. And then what I think you have is uh, a coin that you throw. And this coin, with the first company you start, you have a 10% or a 5% chance of succeeding. Then you learn a lot. You throw another coin and then you have 10%. And I think the more coins you you toss, the better your chance gets to be successful. Some, I think that if you... Put, for example, a very extremely successful 25-year-old founder who has raised millions, who, who's uh, done an amazing job. I think this guy was very lucky. I think if you have 10 of them born the same way, raised the same way, all of them will be successful by 40, for sure. One, one will be happy to raise uh, this early because it's also luck involved. But still, you have to be a certain, uh, like you have to have a certain personality. You have to be ready for the challenges. Uh, and then you can do this. I think many people are as lucky as Bill Gates was. Bill Gates wasn't, was, was not the only one. I think that Bill Gates used this chance. Of course, he was lucky that he was in the right place at the right time. But I think the role of you as an entrepreneur is to toss as many coins as possible and use them. And um, if you have luck early, that's great. I think I was lucky with Novit. I, 
actually, when we started Novit, I, I had a job offer and um, we started Novit three days before I had to say yes to my job offer. And then the day I had to say yes, I said no, because we're already 40 people in the team. So that was extremely lucky. That was such a, a great timing. I'm sure I, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I'm sh- I, my plan was to start working for this company, learn new skills. At the same time, uh, not use my money, but try to uh, save as much as possible to have enough to start my company. But I was lucky to have the company exactly at that, at that point. So I think luck is a crucial role, but only short term. Long term, I think if you are a successful person or someone who, who wants to do, who wants to build a company, you are going to have success with this. You'll just have to toss enough coins. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And before I kind of get you into your story of Nova 20, I wanted to just kind of, you know, go back to the idea that a lot of, um, for example, long-term success, I mean, that wouldn't even be an opportunity if you as an entrepreneur don't take an opportunity that's in front of you in the first place, uh, whether you have that initial push, that luck, um, it's all about actually taking the chance, taking the risk and diving into something that you are very well aware that has a very high um, uh, potential to not succeed. So it's actually quite interesting. It's all about the concept of just trying, taking that first initial step of diving into what you believe could really expand. And um, that's exactly kind of what you've been doing um, really with your, you know, with your three companies that you founded. That's you've been diving into every single one of them and you're seeing and you're learning. That's exactly one of the things that is really interesting about entrepreneurship. There's no such thing as a failed um, company. Kind of the experiences and the time that you put into it um, and the experience that come out of it is a learning process. And then you can apply that to your next uh, your next venture. And um, I believe that's kind of what a lot of people are doing. And I believe that's what you're doing as well. So tell me now about Novid 20. Tell me about the initial founding who did you and just one more thing about, about about the story because i i always like to take an analogy to karate i mean first mm-hmm. i think there are many investors actually i know investors that say they're not going to invest in uh, startups where the founders haven't failed with a startup yet but then another thing i think that's something i learned in karate this uh, fa- failure mindset actually because i i was in the national team for for quite a while and what i what i saw is that in every karate fight and there are always two people in a fight but you always have two winners and you have one loser in a fight. And that's something I saw over the, all the years I was in karate, that winner number one is quite obvious. Winner number one is the person that wins the fight, that gets the medal, that is happy, comes home, gets great food because uh, I'm the winner and I, I have to celebrate and uh, drinks and is happy. Winner number two and winner number two wins way more. Winner number two is the person that loses the fight. Because every time I lost a fight... I went back home, I analyzed, I looked at what do I have to do different? What do I have to do better? And I think that if you lose 10 fights compared to if you win 10 fights, you will learn way more if you lose 10 fights and you will get way better after those 10 fights if you have lost all of them because you will analyze and you will see what what makes you better. And once you understand that failing is not not a loss, but it's a win actually, I think that's when, when, when you're ready to really start out. And then the loser, the person that actually loses the fight, and there are too many of those, unfortunately, is the person that uh, says, I don't want to lose. I'm scared of losing. And that's why I'm not going to start, why I'm not going to go into this, uh, into the competition. And I think that's sad. I think you should try. And if you fail, that's great. And I think failure has to be embraced more. And in entrepreneurship, it's the same. I think you shouldn't be scared of failing. 
I think if you fail, you have learned way more than in any other job. And um, I think also in this, just looking at the CV, it's a great experience. So mm-hmm. I think you sh- more people should be proud to fail. I absolutely love that comparison um, with karate, that there's always going to be, you know, a learning experience throughout the entire process. And I think that's kind of the, the the whole idea behind this podcast is to kind of open up the world about failing startups or just in general failing. It, it does. It's not just about success all the time. It's all about the untold stories that people don't mention. The people um, kind of close down those worlds where they didn't succeed, where actually we shouldn't be doing that. We should be going over them, analyzing what we did wrong, what we did right, and using that for our future concepts. But I wanted to ask, you um, in regards to the winner and the loser aspect. What if you're always the winner? Let's take the perspective that you're always winning. You're always succeeding. You've never had a failed startup. Do you believe that's kind of a demotivating factor? Do you believe that people kind of change their mindset through, along the way um, if they're always winning, if they've never had a failed concept? I'm, you know, this is a very rare occasion um, because it's it's not very common that you see a case like this. But what happens when the person is always winning? I think then then the challenges are not big enough. It's in, in karate, it's great if you always win the regi- regional championships, but then you should try the national, then you should try the international. Uh, I think that I, I know people also in, in, in uh, karate fighters that always go to the smallest competitions because they always win, but that's not the goal of it. That's uh, I think then then you're not challenging yourself enough. It's It feels cool, of course. It feels cool, but you will stay regional. And I think there are, of course, some people that have failed very often and don't show this, but all the successful people, uh, the very successful people have failed in some way or the other. And uh, if not, yeah, I, I mean, there are always exceptions to the rule. There are always ex- so some exceptions to the rule. You'll probably find someone. Uh, generally, I think it, it is extremely important to be ready to fail. And if you are scared, I mean, you can also be a winner, and um, not be scared of failing. But if you win this often, you might be scared of failing. And actually, I was, when I lost my karate fights at the beginning, my dad said, hey, Misha, I'm very proud. And I think it is very important that you lost because here you're learning learning the most. And when my brother started fighting and my little sister, uh, I also was like, wow, it's, it's actually great that he failed now because they had an advantage compared to others because they trained with, very, with more experienced people than I did, for example. So it is important that... They lost fights and uh, also had to cry because that's where you try out. And that's where uh, your ego has to come down a little. It's okay to fail. I think it's good to learn this early. So I think it's actually, I think we should applaud more when people lose fights. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. It's 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 very it's a very intricate process. I mean, th- I mean, it's an intricate idea because there's a lot that comes to it. For example, um, if some people are generally born in um, you know a family or a community that ha- gives them you know ten steps ahead um, without them choosing, you know, nobody gets chosen. Nobody chooses where uh, they kind of you know start their initial life. And if if you kind of are grown into a community where you already are ten steps ahead everyone else or 10 steps ahead um, the person next to you, uh, I believe that it really just comes down to personal values and beliefs um, of how not to let that 
you know, get through your head, um, kind of to really ground yourself and realize, okay, just because I do have some advantage point over the person next to me, that shouldn't really affect me as a person. It shouldn't really influence the way um, I communicate with people, the way that I do things. So it's a, it's a very intricate idea. Um, there are a lot of things that go into it, but yeah, definitely. I, I agree with everything that you just said. So, um, Yeah. Yeah. Finally, last last thing, I, because I talk so much about fighting, I just want to say I'm, I've never fought on the streets. I'm a very very peaceful person. It's just a karate in karate, where it's also just a semi semi contact. I don't think that fighting is the right way to solve problems. Just to have it clear, it's uh, an analogy I do with the karate competitions. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's it's a really interesting analogy. I mean, you have a lot of experience that you're bringing into your entrepreneur world. It's very interesting how you connect uh, what you're doing as an entrepreneur to the sport that you were very much um, engaged with since a young age. So it's really interesting to hear someone uh, make a comparison between the two aspects and not just uh, from, you know, different worlds in the business areas. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so let's maybe go into Nova 20. Tell us all about that. I'm very, we're very interested to know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that was for sure the craziest experience I have had in my life. If you want, I can just start with, with how, the whole thing, how the whole thing started. That was in my exchange semester in Barcelona from January to, to May. But then in March, we had to come back. I, was, I saw the numbers were rising. I saw how in Italy they already went into lockdown. And how Spain was behind just by 10 days and actually has a higher, had a higher growth rate than Italy. And all my friends were laughing, were like, no, 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 it's going to be fine and we don't need to fly. So I booked my flight for the 12th of March because it was obvious where, where things were going. And I got home to Vienna on the, on the 12th of March. And I thought about what can you do now? There is a big problem we have. There is a lot of other problems that we will have in the next days. How can you support? How can you do something in that time? Because I think that uh, we will have a lot of problems now. So I thought about it for the whole day. And then I was looking at, at how other countries were coping with COVID. And I saw that South Korea had 8,000 cases, then 7,000 and 6,000. So South Korea was ahead of, uh, ahead of Europe because they already had the whole, uh, like they were way ahead in the pandemic. Um, so I called a friend who lived in South Korea and I asked him, hey, Eddie, what are you doing different in South Korea? Why is stuff working out for you? And he was like, well, Michael, uh, we have a lot of transparency and apps. And I was like, okay, um, we cannot develop transparency, but we could start with an app. And that, that was the call. We, we actually had this call at 9 p.m. And um, I directly went to the developers. I was The streets were already empty. Nobody's on the streets because we were just starting this uh, shutdown slowly. So I was running through the spooky streets, uh, two kilometers to the house of the developers, and we started working on it from 9.30 p.m. to 4 a.m., so 4 in the morning. And that same night, we were free, free people. I found another UX, uh, UX designer and a marketer, so we were five them, and started developing this app and said, we need this done within a week in order to actually have an impact uh, to build the South Korean model. And then the next day, I called five other people that I valued very much because of the work, And we were 10 people. And then I saw we are going to grow extremely fast. Um, so what I did is I called one of my mentor, a mentor, now a mentor, then he was just a role model. And I asked him, he's a leadership expert. I asked him, Sebastian, I will grow this project extremely fast. I don't know how many people we will be in a week, but I will have a lot of problems and I probably don't know the best solutions. 
is it okay for you if I call you when I have whenever I I have something I, I struggle with? And it was like Michael for the next two weeks feel totally free. So the next day we grew to twenty. We became a team of eighty people within a week. Um, and I needed to change some structures, some people, the positions of people. So whenever something like that happened, I was like, I called Sebastian and I said, Sebastian, following situation, I need to change this position, this person. I will do it in this and this way. What, what would you do different? And he said, well, I think that's a great approach. I would change maybe A, B, and C. Okay, perfect. Bye. And this way we had a very efficient, efficient communication. And I think that especially as a young founder, it is important to have this sentence of Socrates in your head. I know that I know nothing. That That's what I did. I, I talked to a lot of mentors at that time and uh, always very efficient calls, but I had three different mentors for different fields where you could just I could just ask questions in order to be sure that I'm taking that, that we're doing this the right way because this was of a very big also national importance in case it worked out. And I communicated to everyone, hey, there's a 95% chance we're going to fail and a 5% chance we're going to, to do something. And people believed in this. And then on our third day, we did the LinkedIn post where we said, hey, we're building this app. We already have a first working prototype. And uh, we got nearly 200 applications from very senior people. Mm-hmm. So we grew very fast from that point on. We started talking to governments. We developed the South Korean app just two weeks after after our uh, after the idea. And then we said, actually, the South Korean model, which is based on GPS and uh, a map, doesn't work for Europe. So we started building a contact tracing, a Bluetooth contact tracing app. And uh, we threw the whole product away two weeks after. Then two weeks more, and we had the product developed. At that time, we talked with about 40 governments. So we had a team just talking to governments and to people close to governments. And uh, we launched it with the Georgian government on some in April. I'm not sure about the exact date, but in April. So that was insanely fast. And then we had 150,000 downloads in just a day. The minister, the health minister did a speech and told the people we need to use the app. And that was the first automated contact tracing app in Europe. And we had 150,000 downloads in just in 24 hours. So it was insane to see uh, in the first hour, we had 30,000 downloads. That was uh, ridiculous. It was an amazing time. And yeah, I mean, what's, what's sad? What's sad is that there are mathematical models that have shown if 60% of the people use such an app in a great way, uh, in a good way, in the right way, then you could bring the reproduction number of COVID down to one. The problem is that politics, in, in, my, in my eyes, didn't communicate it right. And that people are so concerned about their data. And we work with the, the best uh, law, law firms. So for us, it was extremely important to uh, have a high data privacy. And we built it uh, decentralized, the whole thing. So there was no concern with data. I mean, even if you compare it to Facebook, it's insane what amount of data Facebook takes. And uh, that was not the case. So it's very sad that here a lot of theories and a lot of, oh, the governments want to want to control us uh, came up as, uh, no, we don't want to use the app, although it is actually an easy solution or a good solution if used right. So it's kind of sad that it didn't work out the way it uh, should have, mm-hmm. but it was an amazing experience. I think that's that's 
the, the whole idea behind Over 20 is absolutely wonderful, of course. Um, the idea is that it just baffles me why people were so hesitant to, you know, um, you know, diving deeper into it because the, uh, like you said, the mathematical prediction behind it is correct. And um, why do you believe that people were so hesitant to, you know, engage more in, with the application? I mean, it's life changing. It, it, it's something, like you said, has a social impact. It has something that's clearly and evidently produced and developed on the idea to help people. So why would why would people be so hesitant and um, have such a denying, you know, kind of viewpoint with the entire idea? So I think first it wasn't really communicated, right? In Austria, they were talking about you have to use the app. You There is no way not to use the app and you can only shop in billars in, in the shops if you have the app. And the problem with this communication, especially when an app is not ready yet, is that you have uh, all the, uh, the opposition, the parties in the opposition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in our, in the case of Austria, they just did a picture or uh, tell, told people about uh, an anarchy, basically, a monarchy, where just... Uh, where you take all the data from the people and it's uh, tracking and they track you to your homes. And that's great for uh, for elections. It helps. Of course, people believe this very fast when they need solutions to the big problem that they have. And then people started calling the pandemic fake, which was, yes, it, I think in Austria was a big problem with the parties in the opposition. And I think that was very sad because it was used in a political way. Um, and we could have worked on way better solutions early on before it got too late. And I think like now everyone's just tired. We should have worked very fast and um, the communication just wasn't right. I think if, if you communicate such a thing, you have to be ready with the technology. You have to be ready to start it. And then you have to communicate in a way where you include the whole, uh, the public and the, the society that lives in your country. But it's, it did not work out. And then the second thing is that Countries are just way too slow with such implementation. Georgia took our took the app because they, they had experts decide who, uh, who what they are going to do. But when politicians decide, it very often is that uh, no, we need uh, a big corporate doing this thing for us. In Germany, for example, that was one or two months after we were ready with our app. One of the unicorns in Germany, WeFox, together with other great startup companies, the experts of Germany, developed such an app as well for Germany and talked to the government. And then the government said, no, we're going to pay 60 million to, to the uh, SAP on Deutsche Telekom, which is a telecommunications provider. And they lost two more months. So because of this very rigid, very slow process, you cannot really trust into what the, what the government is doing. And it was sad. It was sad. It was a very political thing. We couldn't do more than develop the technology. That was our role. As a company of 80 people, you can't do, you can't change everything, but you can develop a technology if you work very fast that helps uh, politics to solve the whole problem. Mm -hmm. I understand. It's very unfortunate, really, that you've had some kind of limitation um, on a concept that is quite, you know, life changing and, um, yeah, I think this is not the first time that we see something like this happening, but what are kind of the lessons that you learned through this process from the entire experience of going um, about with the journey of the company? What did you learn the most from it? What did you take out? The first thing is what Richard Branson said with his book, screw it, let's do it. 
when you see a problem and you want to solve it, don't think about it too long. That was the, the greatest decision that I was, it was 9, 9 p.m. And I, I was like, should I go? Should I not? Should I, it's important. Should I solve it now? And within a minute I said, yes, I'm leaving. And I just started running to the developers. I, I called them 20 times and we started working on it. So I think that if you have a solution you really want to work on, screw it, let's do it. Just start working on it. That is the first and the most important thing. Um, then I, I actually have, I, in the first week where I was literally just working, even in the shower, it was insane. Uh, I wrote down every day, just one sentence of what I, what I learned this day. And then I tried to, I, months later, I wrote, uh, for every one of those eight learnings, I wrote, uh, a text to explain it. And one of the things is tune the engine. I think that very often when you are in this growth stage, for example, what I saw is that we could grow our team and a lot of people applied and we had like 200 applications. We were already 20 people and we could just grow and take more in. But then it is important to stop for a moment, look at the structure, maybe lose a day in a normal startup where you don't have to grow this fast, uh, but still grow fast. Wait for a week, analyze exactly how can we grow? Is our structure ready for growth? So tune the engine first and then put in all the fuel. And especially when you're in high stress environment, we're extremely stressed. I think it's important to turn off for a second, look at it from an eagle perspective, see what do I have to adapt before I can grow and then start grow. And uh, I think that you have to tune the engine uh, often and uh, it is better to not grow for a while, but to work on the processes and work on your engine and then grow very fast, then just keep growing because then at some point, especially when you step growing, you'll have a lot of problems. So um, that is one thing. Then another, let me, let me think. One, one of the very important uh, things that I learned is uh, to not talk before you haven't walked the walk. So um, do not tell people what you are going to, to do before you haven't done it. What we did very well, I think, is that um, we said we are going to work on this, but we never over, we, we never, we try to never overpromise. Not I'm going to develop this tomorrow, but nor are we said we're going to do it in probably two days, knowing that we for sure have it in two days and maybe even, to, even tomorrow. And that's how you always over delivered. So I think it's very important to not talk too much before having done and done something. And this way we had a very, a good standing also with uh, external stakeholders, but mm -hmm. Yeah, other than this, one, one last thing which I want to share uh, for founders is um, I, I know that I know nothing. I know that I know nothing um, is extremely important. I think that as a founder, you many founders think that they know everything, that they know the market perfectly and they don't have to ask anyone. If you have the chance to talk to experts, uh, to talk to your employees, to talk to anyone who uh, might understand something, listen. What I think was the most important was when we had such a big organization that I tried to call, to talk to the people who just onboarded, who started, see, how do you feel? What do you have to change? What should we adapt? And they actually had such a great input that because I, I, I tried to listen, we tried to listen to each other, uh, we started to grow. And no matter who you are, you have to understand that you can't know anything, you can't know everything and you have to listen to people. So remember, I know that I know nothing. Mm -hmm. That's, I think that's great advice. I think that's a really interesting, I mean, that's a very correct mindset to have in one sort of sense, not that everyone has it, but uh, your take on it and your explanation of why it does really work. Um, I mean, it's true. So what do you really believe is the most and the least exciting thing about being an entrepreneur? Hmm. 
Uh, that's a good, good question. So I think there's one thing that you have with entrepreneurship versus uh, a normal job. I think the normal job life is pretty much uh, you can you know what the weeks are like. It's uh, you can expect it's it's you expect what is going to happen more or less, and it's it's cool. What you have in entrepreneurship is that you can't really expect, you can't really foresee how the next weeks are going to be very often. So it's a very intense up and down. And the ups are great because when you're up and you're, you're a founder and you, you race or you, you grow very fast, it is amazing. I, I, it's an insane feeling when, you, when everything goes well and there are moments where everything goes well. It's insane. It's just a wonderful. It's wonderful. The problem is that because you have those ups, and I believe that life is like a sea, the bigger the waves, the bigger the downs also sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the downs come and the, the downs are hard. Uh, I also have them. And uh, that is something you have to live with. You have to be fine with, with the life being a sea. That's, if you want to be very high, you have to be ready to be low sometimes. Generally, I think that is an, an important understanding because the greatest things are growing with the team, having having fun with the team, but also... I think it gives you a lot of fulfillment when I when we reach goals and we always have an impact also have an impact focus you feel very fulfilled you feel like you're giving something back to the world and that feeling is is great and what doesn't feel great is when a company doesn't work out um, when you cannot sleep when you come home and you still think about work and it is extremely hard to turn off and that is something I work on very hard I really work on that to try to turn off because you need this even as a founder but the company comes with you in your dreams and that's uh, it's always with you. It's always with you. And even if you're not working, uh, it's somewhere in your head. And uh, I think for entrepreneurs, especially for young ones, it's hard training to try to turn off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the reality behind entrepreneurship really is that there are going to be ups and downs. And there are a lot of people that aren't ready for that. Because I believe that starting a company with expectations of success is kind of a tricky and off-putting way to begin because uh, once you kind of begin with such a mindset that something will be extremely successful and you think that you know everything and you've done all your market research and you're just saying, oh, this is this is going to succeed. This is the next big thing. Um, do you think that that mindset is, you know, valuable in one sort of sense, you know, that confidence, the confidence in what you're doing is important, but do you believe that it, it can be a really big problem when reality kind of hits throughout the journey? Yeah, but you have to be ready for that. I studied entrepreneurship mm-hmm. in university and uh, there are a lot of uh, empirical studies done on entrepreneurs. And yes, entrepreneurs have an overconfidence, a big overconfidence compared to normal people. Uh, you need this to start, but uh, the problem is normally you're not this much better than people who are not overconfident. So nearly all of those people who start fail and then it is important to stand up again and to try because not not many are lucky to start to win with the first uh, company but uh, then it's important to start to stand up again i think the overconfidence is needed if we didn't have overconfident people at the beginning if you don't believe that your idea is going to be successful although logically looking at it it's not going to be successful uh, if we don't have people that still believe in it and are overconfident and sure it's going to work out we would not have uh, great companies we would not have many companies and we wouldn't have the entrepreneurs we have um so i think overconfidence as for society is great for the individual being over overconfident it makes your heart life your life harder probably mm-hmm. but um i it's it's important it's great uh to to try 
Yeah, I completely agree. And I wanted to ask you, what advice would you give entrepreneurs when it comes to troubleshooting or kind of in the beginning of your startup process, setting out the possible problems that you know you're going to run into? Um, And when you lay those problems out, how could entrepreneurs kind of go about avoiding them? Or what can they do to kind of, um, in one sense, what can they do from the beginning to kind of analyze and try to avoid such issues that are, you know, like they're, they're going to pop up during the process, but what can they do to kind of troubleshoot in one sense? Mm -hmm. Good question. Good question. I think you you cannot say this generally for startups, Uh, not one specific uh, tip in a, in an industry. That's hard. It's hard to say what I think is important. If you start with a new market, uh, with a new project, try to talk to someone who did something similar, try to talk to an experienced entrepreneur and entrepreneurs, by the way, are very often extremely, uh, like, really ready to help when you ask them. Uh, that's something I, I saw. That when you're a young entrepreneur, the experienced entrepreneurs often see you as a younger version of yourself, of themselves. So that it helps you to talk to them uh, faster, and they support you easier. So I think it's important to talk to people who have gone for what you have gone, in order to. Um, just be safe of some of the failures because you have to fail, but you don't have to go through all the failures. So try to talk to people who have uh, walked through your uh, future journey. And if you are a team of more than two or even two, try to have weekly one-on-ones with all your co-founders where you talk one-on-one with the other people on your uh, core team because you will have problems. And the thing is, if I have a problem with one of the founders and we haven't talked we haven't ever talked one-on-one regularly. And I just come talking to him whenever we're mad at each other. This is hard for the team dynamic. This is really hard for the team and team dynamic. So I think it is really important in the founder team to have in individual connections, to have one-on-one connections with every other co-founder and also try to do it at least with some of the employees as you grow. Uh, because that uh, really helps you save, save yourself from a lot of problems when you get to talk to what... And talk very openly. You have to be radically transparent and honest with your co-founders. And if you you set up a process where you really talk and do this at least weekly, for real, I think this this, this is important to have a weekly conversation with uh, each other co-founder. I think that will save you from a lot of problems because I see many founders living in their hats and not communicating their problems with the others until it is too late. So... Uh, that is that is that is my second tip. Tip number one is talk to experienced people who have walked through your journey already. And tip number two, have weekly one-on-ones with each co-founder, each of your co-founders, um, before so that you can talk about all the good and bad things before it is too late. I think that's some really good advice. Thank you for that. And I think I'm just going to kind of go straight into uh, our last question. And what is your connection to the Bulgarian startup ecosystem? And how do you try to maintain that connection right now? My connection to the Austrian, to the Bulgarian startup system. So actually, I'm, I'm unfortunately, I'm not, not uh, as connected as I would like to be yet. I now with 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 uh, Novitz twenty and also I I got to have hold the opening speeches the the Bulgarian hackathon for uh, against for COVID te- technologies around COVID and there I got to connect to uh, to to some people so I by now I know some people in the Bulgarian startup scene 
but I'm looking to connect more in the in, in, in this year and in the next year and I'll be in Bulgaria again in the summer. So I'll be very happy to get to know more people to see how we can expand because we're just doing a new company, starting a new company where we also do a lot of tech projects. And I would be very happy to expand our team at some point to Bulgaria and get connected more to the ecosystem ecosystem because in Bulgaria we have so many talented people and so many especially technically talented people and this uh, it is crazy and uh, in other countries like Austria we have uh, too many business people and money but uh, no people that actually do and that is something that we do have in Bulgaria and I would like to connect more to the doers and makers in Bulgaria because of the people I know uh, so many are of the people and I know of the Bulgarians I know in the startup scene I'm 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 really amazed and um yeah I think I am trying to become a bridge also between the Bulgarian and the Austrian startup ecosystem because they the two just can help each other uh, a lot and um yeah that's something the, the connecting to Bulgaria is something I'll work on in the next in this this and next year so also there are people that uh, are in the startups in Bulgaria feel free to reach out Michael Kovacev on uh LinkedIn happy to chat that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for um, your story, everything. Um, and before we close off, do you just kind of want to give one last piece of advice to young and inspiring entrepreneurs? Um, I believe that they could learn a lot from what you've been through. So give us that one piece of advice that you would really want them to know. There are actually two things that are in my mind. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. We'd love to hear them. <laughs> So the first one, and uh, I know many of you have heard this so often, but read books <laughs> for real. I <laughs> before, before doing Novit, I for a couple of months I started reading one book a week, and if you read uh, if you read books about leadership about, about entrepreneurship, it gets you into the head of the most successful people global globally, and you get to learn from them from how they do how they uh, learn how they build their companies. And instead of being just in classes in, in, in your country or, or in your university, you get to learn from the greatest worldwide. I mean, both is great, but try to absorb from, from those uh, global geniuses. And uh, for me, books like Principles from Ray Dalio, they change the way I, I do things. Uh, Screw It, Let's Do It from Richard Branson uh, changed my life in some way. Uh, Start With Why from Simon, from Simon Sinek also was... Uh, crazy for me it's it's the way i communicate now it's, it's changed also a lot because of that book i think that reading books is if, if you start reading books uh you just get open to to a to a new world of knowledge and then the second thing is just do also don't read too many books <laughs> do you have to do don't be too theoretical start start even if you think you are going to fail again screw it let's do it just do and be ready to fail and see failure, failure as a good thing. Absolutely wonderful, Michael. Thank you so much. Um, it was great talking to you. And thank you once again for taking the time out of your days to be able to kind of come onto our podcast and tell us your story. Thanks for the invitation. It was very great talking to you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked the episode, make sure to share it and follow us on social media at Startup Vlograd for more awesome content.